Hello, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and you're listening to Games on Film. Yes, thank you for tuning in. Do you tune into podcasts? Thank you for tuning into Games on Film, the podcast that celebrates video game movies. Uh, we are back with another movie you know, sort of influenced by video games more than uh, directly inspired, though there's quite a lot of directly inspired sounds and imagery in this film. What is the film we're doing, Rory? Well, rather than taking its source material from a video game, it's a film based instead on a series of graphic novels. It is Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. It is indeed, celebrating its 10th anniversary. 10 long years. 10 pretty uneventful years, must truth be told. (laughs) Nothing's much happened in my life. I mean, I've I've, uh, acquired a wife in that time, and I didn't have to fight any evil exes at all. So that was a lot better than Scott Pilgrim's journey, I suppose. Well done. Going back 10 years ago, I think you and I were both very excited about this film because sometimes we do a film where we've not played the video game or we, we'd, we'd, we've played a little bit of Dimly Aware. But I think it's safe to say when Scott Pilgrim vs. The World came out, we had read all the graphic novels and we are super hyped and we're a massive fans of the director, Edgar Wright. So um, we were all for this, weren't we? Yeah, I think we were very much primed to think of this film as potentially the best film ever. So it was definitely riding a wave of hype, but uh, I think for very specific individuals because... It didn't seem to really necessarily um, reflect that at the box office. No. And on that, I think it's interesting because there's uh, because it's the tenth anniversary uh, around this time, um, which is strange because it's you forget that this was like a kind of mid-August release for a film which is wall-to-wall snow, mm-hmm. and we've recently had incredibly hot weather. Um, it seems like a very strange time to be watching a very snow-based movie. Although then again, the other earlier this week, I watched Last Christmas <laughs> for the first time. So um, Christmas movies, snowy-based movies in the summer, why not? Well, yeah, I watched, um, I think, Frozen 2 uh, this week specifically because it was uh, I was hoping for some snowy stuff in it to make me feel a little bit colder. And it, it sort of worked. And Die Hard was like a summer film as well, even though it's Christmas set, but I guess it's LA, so it doesn't make a huge difference weather-wise. No, but I don't think it was really the weather depicted in the film which stopped people buying tickets to see the no. film. They didn't see the trailers and think, snow time in August, what are you talking about? <laughs> I live in the uh, Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think famously this film 
smashed Comic-Con, didn't it? It was made for the Comic-Con crowd and it was just so hyped. And I think this is one of the first films which sort of advertised to studio execs that being big in Comic-Con isn't the be-all and end-all. And I think, especially with the Marvel films, the, the makers of geeky films have now been able to walk quite a fine line between honouring the the fandom and and bringing in wider fans but um yeah i think internet buzz does not translate to box office as and i think this was very much like a case of studios realizing that that was the fact i mean the the fact that this film got made is kind of impressive and it had like a 60 million dollar budget uh it made 47 and a half million box office worldwide eventually so yes it was a loss and it wasn't a huge success but it is just interesting how it seems like it was positioned in a way as some kind of tentpole blockbuster and i know things like guardians of the galaxy and whatever were unknown quantities even iron man wasn't so widely known but i think that obviously had a lot more stuff going for it whereas this was maybe too niche to be positioned in that way another factor is is its marketing and again i really liked the marketing apart from the bizarre trailer tagline which said something along the lines of it's on like donkey kong which had which smacked off um hi fellow kids like adults trying to work out what the, what the kids are down with um but this came out when michael Sarah was on the rise and he had released a film very recently which was uh, i think nick and nora's infinite playlist and there seemed to be just a little bit too much michael Sarah, and the marketing i or at least the posters and things didn't really differentiate the different types of film so i've seen people on twitter who discovered it years later like you know when you're living in a little microcosm where you're edgar wright obsessives and scott pilgrim obsessives you think how didn't everyone know this film existed but some people on twitter are saying i had no idea this film existed and i had no idea it was this kind of crazy film full of martial arts and stuff until i was you know forced to watch it basically yeah so, but i sort of think that there's been a lot of uh, film journalists uh, patting themselves on the back uh, with all the articles which have come out celebrating 10 years of this film. And they're all like, oh, yes, no, we all knew this was a cult classic. We said so at the time, and this would be a cult classic in the, in the making. And it's uh, 10 years later, look, we've been proven right. And I think that's a little bit bullshit i think it's <laughs> i i think it's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because it's just like we are the history writers us film journalists so we can determine what will be a cult classic in 10 years because we're writing an article in 10 years time saying it's a cult classic and yeah i i think it's built up an audience over time because a lot of people didn't see it at the time which maybe is the definition of a cult classic i don't know but it does seem i don't know all this kind of celebration of things, which we are part of, is a little self-congratulatory. Yeah, and as we'll get into it, I don't have an unqualified love for this film. I feel it's bizarre. I think this film might almost be too good for our podcast, because <laughs> it's it's really good. But at the same time, and perhaps this is because I'm a fan of the graphic novels, there are some things about it I'm, which I still sort of knock against even now. So we'll get into it. 
in a little bit. Um, uh, we've talked about how much we love Edgar Wright and and the books, but should we just explain a bit about them? Yeah, I think the reason this film, well, the comics in that respect, were first appeared on my radar was because uh, we were both fans of Spaced and we were both fans of Edgar Wright. And I think the first time I actually watched Spaced, I don't know whether it was the same episode as you watched, but I think the first episode I ever watched was the paintball episode because uh, my friend Stu at school, he talked about the show. I'd seen the trailers, but I hadn't actually watched the show, but he said, oh, there was an episode where like all the zombies from Resident Evil 2 came out of the TV and <laughs> started attacking the people. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. And then we watched the paintball episode of Spaced and first thing I kind of see is they've got an Evil Dead 2 poster it's like, mm-hmm. wow, this speaks to me on a very deep level already. You know, Spaced uh, itself as a show does have video games in it, does have video game references. Uh, on our previous episode, Tekken, there's obviously Tekken in the show where it's all like Nina Williams wins and Daisy Steiner wins. You get Time Crisis, you get Tomb Raider, and yes, uh, as I mentioned, Resident Evil 2 is, I guess, the key one and, and forms that crux of uh, that uh, episode. I think it's the third episode of the first uh, series, which in a way became something of the um, genesis of the idea for Shaun of the Dead itself. And I think there was quite a bit of talk. I saw some interviews with Edgar Wright in relation to Scott Pilgrim about his gaming background. And he mentioned all the sort of growing up with a ZX Spectrum and, you know, arcade games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Dragon's Lair, he mentioned. But he described himself as a lapsed gamer because during space time he became addicted to playing PlayStation. So the way that episode with uh, the character Tim played by uh, Simon Pegg is playing all night and then sees the zombies everywhere sort of related to what he was doing in his actual life where he was staying up all night playing Resident Evil 2 and then he'd walk outside the streets of London at dawn's first light and the empty streets reminded him of being in an actual zombie apocalypse roundabout way but got to Shaun of the Dead and you know obviously then led on to his uh, uh, feature film career Heads up Don't sneak up on me like that. Mm. Want a cup of tea? Yes. I think I read in an interview with uh, Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines, um, who wrote Spaced, that the characters in Spaced are so... Um, obsessed with pop culture they they live breathe they talk pop culture they they can't they see the whole world through a pop culture lens and given the film we got scott pilgrim that's very much the characters in scott pilgrim and um i guess that's why when it was announced edgar wright was going to uh, direct the scott pilgrim film it seemed like a perfect fit it's like one of those few times where you just think, oh, obviously, obviously Edgar Wright does the Scott Pilgrim movie. But for the longest time, I wasn't sure how they were going to visualise 
the graphic novel because the graphic novels have a very distinctive kind of manga influenced style you got to remember before we saw the first trailer no no film had really done the thing where you know, save for batman and stuff they never did the thing where you saw the sort of diegetic sound effects right there on the screen mm. yeah i don't think there's really been a film which looks like scott pilgrim before or really since and i think watching it again now that's definitely like the thing which is my main takeaway is that clearly so much work went into the visual style and how this looks and feels. And I think it's melding of both a comic book sensibility and a video game sensibility and how the screen is just layered with all kinds of stuff, foreground and background. I can kind of see why a film like this hasn't been made since, because it just seems like such a lot of hard work (laughs) to like achieve that without it looking too much, say, like Ang Lee's Hulk, where they do the sort of comic book panel stuff, mm. and it just, you know, it's cute, but it doesn't really work. And yeah, there's like, there's like bits and pieces in this film where it's just like, oh, I've seen that in other films, but not necessarily everything all at once. I guess the closest thing I can think of is something like Speed Racer, uh, mm. in terms of just like the hyperkinetic visual style. I think this has like even more, maybe not as much kind of color as Speed Racer, but I think this has even more stuff happening uh, throughout. I recently, just last night actually, I went to see a 10th anniversary screening of Inception. And you just think, well, I've actually seen Inception-y stuff and loads of things since Inception, but I still haven't seen that sort of thing so much from Scott Pilgrim. And yes, these 10th anniversary articles, they're all saying that in a way, Scott Pilgrim was sort of ahead of its time or prescient or uh, even influential. But I don't think that's the case at all, because I just don't think there's any other film which has done that in that way. So I think it's definitely like an odd blip <laughs> in terms of uh, like a very sort of curious movie in that respect. So what about the comics then? We've talked about Edgar Wright a bit, but um, how did you encounter... The comics, because you were the person who introduced me to the comics, so I'll take your lead on this bit. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was just me seeing probably a news article or some announcement on like a movie site, maybe, just saying that Edgar Wright was poised to direct this comic book, and the plot sounded very interesting to me. It sounded like a fun concept. It's such a great hook, isn't it? Yeah, of this sort of um, marriage between Street Fighter and like fighting game sensibilities, but with a sort of like quirky love story attached to it. I think just like the sort of elevator pitch idea, there's this character who, in order to uh, be together with his new girlfriend, he has to defeat her evil exes. And that's like the sort of log line of the film as much as it is with the comic books. I think the first book came out uh, in 2004, which was Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life and the books by Brian Lee O'Malley. I just sort of saw that Edgar Wright was attached, saw this comic book, and I thought that sounds interesting. So I think at the time only one or two books had come out. I got, I guess, maybe the first couple of volumes and then... As the books came out, I got them as soon as they were released. And then I think the final volume came out maybe a month or so before the movie. 
So it kind of um, managed to do what George R. R. Martin don't. <laughs> I, I feel I feel it might have even been the same week, you know. It was very close. Like really close. Because I, I remember when I finally got my hands on the final issue, which again probably was yours, the, the final volume, Scott Pilgrim's Finest Hour, I decided to read, reread the first volumes and then move on to the last one. And I was so utterly exhausted by the end <laughs> of reading them all. I think it really affected my my view of the last book. So as we're talking about endings, maybe spoiler warning for all of Scott Pilgrim, including yes. the graphic novels. I'd heartily recommend the graphic novels if you've got the time to read them. And I think they're available in easily digestible black and white original versions and full colour hardbacks, which are all glossy and stuff, which I have not picked up. But um, have you picked up the coloured versions? No, I'm just keeping it old school, original, black and white. Obviously, obviously, there is a lot more content than in this film. It's not the same degree as Akira, but it's going to be pretty... Again, it's quite hard to disassociate my feelings of the book compared to the film with the film, you know. I I don't want to have this whole podcast talking about how this bit isn't like the book, this bit isn't like the book. No. No. The film is quite meta because you have like a, a side character saying quite audibly, oh, like the films are never as good as the comic and stuff like that. So, um, it's very knowing. Rereading them, it, it's filling me with nostalgia and just like spaced. It's not that I necessarily identify with the characters. It's more like I identify with the world or at least that kind of vibe, that energy, the sort of feeling of knowing reference without being too explicit the whole time about that yeah as you say it's hard to condense all that because the timeline of the comets is over the course of a year whereas in the movie it's maybe a week or something could even be less than that yeah you do get like the sort of allow the relationships and the characters to sort of bed in you get a little bit more motivation backstory you know there's like whole subplots and characters obviously which don't appear at all in the film and i'm not saying they need to be in there the way the story goes it's sort of similar um at least the way the film captures the look and feel of the comics there are certain panels directly lifted from it a lot of dialogue is identical but I think because of the process of making the film while the books were still coming out and there was a lot of talk with the original creator and the filmmakers and particularly when it comes to the ending, but the way it gets there is slightly different. And I think the last two books are far more kind of uh, melancholic than I think this film ever quite reaches, Mm. which is fine. But then I think there's also elements which the film takes from the comics, which... I don't think really needed to be in there. I think some stuff works on the page better than it works in the film. I think you've reminded me, my favourite volume is the penultimate one. I think it's Scott Pilgrim versus the universe. And that is, as you say, quite melancholic. And I think the film is quite a breathless film. And it is kind of... Edgar Wright was kind of damned if he did, damned if he doesn't, because he had the choice of either... I mean, there's, there's seven evil exes, so he had a choice of either removing some of the evil exes, but it doesn't roll off the tongue if you say five evil exes or six evil exes. It's seven evil exes. 
I think or we had a choice of maybe splitting it up, but it'll be it's very unsatisfying to have this quest start and the film ends halfway through. Uh, normally, I mean, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of any film which does that. I guess there's the original animated Lord of the Rings where it finishes at Helm's Deep and you're like, oh, <laughs> and then they never make the sequel. But yes, by squishing it all in, it does feel a little bit breathless. I would imagine for people who have not even read the books and, you know, on a, on a very selfish level, there, there are whole sections where I really wish they had spent more time with like the skater guy played by Chris Evans who kind of has a whole book dedicated to himself in the books but he really is in one brilliant scene mm. and I don't I don't know if seeing more of him actually would have been good for the film at all but yeah. speaking of that scene reminds me how we went to a, a special screening a preview screening of Scott Pilgrim vs the World featuring that scene with was pretty much that scene with uh, lucas lee wasn't it yeah it wasn't a screening of the film it was just like a kind of edgar wright in conversation thing at the time of the film's release you go to those previews now don't you do you think oh are they gonna stand up and say would you like to see all of the new star wars film now (laughs) (laughs) and you're like yeah it's like no we're not gonna do that oh (laughs) it was a big chunk of the film though but I remember it quite clearly because it was the weekend of release in America. And I remember you and I were talking at the bar before it began and we were hearing how it was brutal that the, the numbers were not good in America. And we were like, oh, mm. oh, we can't have nice things, I suppose. Well, Scott Pilgrim also exists in another medium and there was a tie-in video game, uh, which kind of brings it back on track in terms of games and film related material because i guess a lot of articles i've seen have talked about the film in general the casting the music but we are a video game movie podcast so we got to talk a little bit about the video gaminess and scott pilgrim versus the world the game is that the full title i think so yes scott pilgrim versus the world the game yeah so that came out again i think maybe a few weeks before the film um and takes its cues from the film but also i think more from the comets too sort of mashes them up together in a way but it definitely captures like the comets have that manga vibe this translates that with a more pixelated vibe in a side-scrolling beat-em-up river city ransom style game which um has become something of a lost video game i suppose yeah so this was released as a tie-in to the on the back of the release of the film and um do you actually own it at present because i still do yes okay i I gave it a bit of a playthrough earlier today as well um just to bring myself up to speed and i I enjoyed it tremendously because the the art style of brian lee o'malley just does translate perfectly to to pixel fake 16-bit artists you know it's that thing when you see <laughs> like games advertises 8-bit when they're actually 16-bit and i don't know but it's basically retro inspired and it's very satisfying to play and i myself actually i struggle to enjoy scrolling beat-em-ups a lot of the time because they can seem a little bit one note but uh, although this one shares some of the repetitiveness when you're fighting wave after wave of baddies it's just the music 
the bosses has got so much character so funny and occasionally stuff directly from the film pops up so it's definitely not completely based on the the graphic novels as opposed to the film but as licensing being licensing after four years of being available on the online it got torn away and Brian Lee O'Malley in all his tweets at the moment regarding Scott Pilgrim has been lamenting this fact but he did recently do a tweet I think it was a day or two ago where he says Ubisoft have reached out to him so perhaps by the time you listen to this something will happen and if it does happen again I'll buy it again for an in, uh, in an instant despite the fact as I just said I have already been playing it so I don't know what's happening I'm so bad for money <laughs> well if it comes on switch then you've got a portable version yeah I just wish you could punch somebody until they explode and money comes out I mean <laughs> it's a very hard game though it is extremely hard um but it's a game I think unlike games like Double Dragon where you your skills do not improve at least in the original games the, your skills and your your hp and everything don't improve it's just beginning to end slog the more you play scott pilgrim the more moves you unlock the better your health gets so you're actually it's hardest at the start and this mm. time around i actually got i got to the end quite lickety split and most boss battles were done after a few uppercuts you know <laughs> so yeah it's definitely a game which lends itself to multiplayer as well because, you know, not just because it's hard, but also it's it's more fun with more people. You know, it's a perfect genre of video game to adapt the graphic novel into and the film as well, because it's, it's just fighting, isn't it? It's, I mean, I feel like we've skirted around this a little bit. The graphic novels are immensely influenced by video game culture and anime and a lot of other things, but... Um, I remember seeing a promotional image for the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels, which was basically the cover of Super Mario Bros. 3, one of my most favourite video games. And so I obviously was drawn to it. I think it's interesting whether or not you would say Scott Pilgrim himself is much of a gamer, especially in the films. I'm not saying he's like a fake gamer guy, um, but... And I mean, obviously, in the film, he talks about how he's learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2. He knows facts about Pac-Man. He goes on a date playing like a like a ninja game. Ninja, ninja revolution. Which is, again, it looks so much like an actual video game. It's fabulous. But yeah, um, I guess we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But it did make me wonder, why are we seeing the world in the film this way? But in the in the comic book, I think it's it's just something which is quite cool. And I feel in the comic book, um, the characters are a little bit more video game influenced. I mean, their very the band is Sex Bob Bomb, Bob Bomb being an enemy in Super Mario. So yeah, and and like the bands in the comics and then in the film, so like the Clash at Demon Head, Crash and the Boys, mm. um, they're named after video games in the comics. They have an earlier band called Sonic and Knuckles, which is mm -hmm. fairly obvious. So, like, names of things appear. I think the Chaos Theatre, which serves as the climax, is from Earthbound. Okie dokie. So, you know, there's those elements. But, yeah, in, in the comments, you do have Scott playing video games, like he's playing Bomberman and some other stuff, um, usually in the past. Mm in sort of like bat story flashbacks or whatever. So yeah, it's it's one of those things where 
it's viewed through this framework of video games, but I think it's more because of the setup with the versus fights. Mm. And that's like a good way of structuring it rather than... I mean, the X's are bosses, basically, aren't they? Yeah. And I, I guess both the comics and the film are a little bit pick and mitts in terms of, oh, look, he's got a P bar. I guess that's like a thing maybe you might see in a video game. And like, yeah, the little noises which pop up of Sonnet Ring and coins when an enemy is defeated and subspace portal doors, I suppose, and continue appearing up in the sky at the end. I I think there's, it's one of those things where it's just like, it's peppered in there because it's cute and some of it speaks to what's going on and some of it's just there because it's like haha video games i think it's a good point to say we're not going to start listing all the little homages and easter eggs and references because this is the 10th anniversary of scott pilgrim there are many resources online for you to do that and so we're not here to basically you know show off our geekiness or um have our geekiness questioned by anyone who's listening (laughs) so uh yeah What's up? I'll leave you alone forever now. You know this one girl with hair like this? Yes, that's Ramona Flowers. She's out of your league. You know her? Tell me now. She just moved here, got a job at Amazon. I have to order something really cool. Scott, are you waiting for the package you just ordered? Maybe. Scott Pilgrim? Hi, I was thinking about asking you out, but then I realized how stupid that would be. That's okay. You should just sign for this, all right? So do you want to go out sometime? I say yes, will you sign for your damn package? So yeah, 8 o'clock? Come to this Battle of the Bands thing. You have a band? Yeah, we're terrible. One, two, three, four! Mr. Pilgrim! I'm Ramona's first evil ex-boyfriend. What? Wait, we're fighting over Ramona? Didn't you get my email explaining the situation? I skimmed it. Mm-mm. What was that all about? If we're gonna date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. So what you're saying is we are dating? I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure. Scott Pilgrim! Prepare to feel the wrath of the League of Evil Exes. Ramona dated twins. At the same time. If you want something bad, you have to fight for it. Step up your game, Scott. Combo! Break out the L word. Lesbian? The other L word. Lesbians? What are you doing? Getting a life. You want to fight me for her? Why on earth would you want to do that? Because I'm in love with her. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Maybe next time we don't date the girl with 11 evil ex-boyfriends. Okay. Oh, that's not that bad. So I have the Level Up Collector's Edition Blu-ray. Meet charming and jobless Scott Pilgrim, Michael Serra. A bass guitarist for garage band Setsbabon, the 22-year-old has just met the girl of his dreams, 
literally. But there's one catch to winning Ramona Flowers, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. He has to meet and defeat her seven evil exes. From genre-smashing filmmaker Edgar Wright, Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, comes the amazing story of one romantic slasher's fight to power up with love before it really is game over. Mm. And it contains moderate violent sex references and bleeped strong language. <laughs> oh, that's I'm so happy that includes the bleep strong language. It's like when you go to Internet Movie Database and there's like a parent's guide and, and you go to if Cannibal Holocaust, what does it feature in the parent's guide? Is it suitable? Well, it doesn't seem to be any bad language, but um, there's some cannibalism. Though I guess the big burning question of this film, of this tone, and we've been talking about the style and things, is is this set in Scott Pilgrim's head? Is it literally happening? Does it matter? That's the big talking point, and I think sort of feeds into general feelings about the film, is the character himself of Scott Pilgrim. The film Scott Pilgrim versus the world, maybe a better way to flip it is the world versus Scott Pilgrim. Mm. Only in the sense that it makes it maybe easier to swallow. What, the swallow the style or the character? Swallow the character not in a i mean that sounds disgusting but um we were talking about cannibals earlier yeah uh, so we talked about how the setup is that he has to fight these seven evil exes so it's very much like a video game structure it sounds like a fighting game structure or you know fighting game movie structure i mean we just did tekken and like straight up top the fights in this are a lot better than anything in tech crazy that isn't it I mean, one is an actual fight. This is like one thing you want from Tekken. It's fights or men with Jaguar hats, but just without Jaguar hats, fights. And it sucks so much. (laughs) So I was looking at, uh, there was a quote from Edgar Wright about the film and he was likening the structure slightly more in terms of Donkey Kong. The fact that you get to the end of the level, Donkey Kong snatches Pauline, I think, away each time and then you go on to the next stage. So... In a way, like the quest, the girl, the futility of love, uh, Ramona becomes this unattainable, literal dream girl who um, is always out of arm's reach in that way. But I, I guess with with Scott is like, yes, he's sort of positioned as this kind of daydreamer who, uh, what you were saying about whether he plays video games, it's like, I don't know whether he plays enough so that... You know, he's viewing everything through the prism of video games. Like, I I guess video games, in a way, help him to fight better because you have the climax where him and his uh, girlfriend, I guess, at the start of the movie, Knives Chow, are in a boss finale battle and they're reusing the moves that they learned playing this Ninja Ninja Revolution arcade game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think he necessarily views everything through video games and i don't know whether the film succeeds in really squaring that hole Hmm. when he has these fights they're treated very matter of fact apart from the first fight where it's with the first evil that's matthew patel i think it's pronounced matthew patel (laughs) i think he might be my favorite ex actually so it's sad to see him go so quickly yeah, he definitely does sound like 
his own fighting announcer, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty funny. Because, you know, that's the start of the film. That's like the moment the film really kicks in and shows exactly what it is. Up until that point, you know, there's been sort of elements of, um, you know, sort of the opening credits and the opening number and when Sets Bobon plays for the first time and you see like the visuals of the music coming out as well as the noise. But like the Mafia Patel fight is definitely where the film like shows its hand. Shows its hand. Yeah. That's where it just sort of like says, oh by the way, this is the film it's gonna be. He will get into epic fights and there's gonna be these crazy battles, but it's gonna be treated very matter of fact. And no one's really going to care. I don't think we usually do a film with this many layers and this deep on the podcast. So I think people are now hearing how we struggle <laughs> with, with any sort of thinking. Because, because in that in that fight, you have the, the character Stacy, his sister, played by Anna Kendrick. And she goes, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, when there's like a fight happening. So she's the one who actually calls out. I guess she's like being the audience in at that point. Someone has to comment on how this is strange but then actually thinking about it maybe she's just saying that because of the singing (laughs) so like the fighting's fine but the fact that there's now singing happening (laughs) it's 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 complicated it's complicated i'm not sure if i'm gonna get all the answer to this but it gives it gives you a lot to think about and i think a few there's a few things wrapped up in what you're saying as well i remember reading edgar wright's uh, being interviewed, I think it might have been Empire. I think it was an on-set interview, and he was saying that in Scott Pilgrim, um, it's like a musical, but the musical numbers are replaced by fights. And in a musical, of course, when the song ends and the dancing stops, people don't go, "What the hell just happened?" They just carry on with their business. And so, when there's a fight happening, I think that is very much the same thing. Um, but going back to our saying a moment ago as to whether or not it's taking place all inside all inside Scott Pilgrim's head you could say that Scott isn't really really fighting anyone you can say he's really the the X's represent uh, Ramona's past her baggage and it's it's really like a visual representation of somebody finding out stuff about their their love interest and and fighting that and and dealing with it and so there's that as well i think that's where the film works best in that respect with this kind of the metaphor of fighting the evil wetsers is about the sort of baggage that people bring to a relationship the sort of breakups are usually not very nice and they can come back to haunt you in your current relationship and this does that in a very literal way and so i think that's the sort of the appeal of the concept is you know this very visual realization of the idea of you know trying to get away from your exes in that respect and that is kind of handled quite well there's like there are some very sort of tense moments between scott and ramona in the film but with Ramona as the character, so she is this, not damsel in distress, but in a sort of video game scenario, she is the sort of, the thing the quote-unquote hero is trying to obtain, and that's how the framework 
you know, that's what the film is playing with, that kind of concept and, and structure that so many video games adhere to. But the thing is with Ramona is that she does have layers. She does have... Uh, she's complex to an extent, and I think more so in the comics. The reason why she comes onto the scene is because she's trying to get away from all that stuff, all her baggage. She's ends up with Scott because he's kind of like a simple option. The, the problem in the film is that I think she's still quite underwritten. And I think she doesn't have a huge amount of agency. And it's fine because the whole idea is that she didn't bring this on to Scott. You know, it's not her fault that all of her exes decided to like gang up on, you know, this new guy on the scene or anything. But I sort of feel like the film doesn't really give her anything to do or any reason, you know, this to be happening. Yeah, I think I have have struggled to gel with this film. I love so much of it. But um, I, I think one of the reasons why I don't perhaps love it... Or, or oh, I do even love it, I suppose. That last time I watched it, really enjoyed it. <laughs> but, you know, I think... I think I'm hesitant to call it a cult classic because I don't think it quite sticks the landing. And I think I'd rather talk about the ending a little bit later. But it should be said that, as, as you mentioned, it has been it was being made as the books were being finished. And I think they did a last a relatively late switch um, to replicate as best they could the ending of the books where spoilers again. Scott does end up with Ramona in the books and the film. I feel the film is sort of actually going in a slightly different direction where he ends up with knives. There is an original ending on the Blu-ray with knives. So it feels slightly weird when he ends up with, with Ramona. But talking about Ramona in the film, she's always been described as a, a manic pixie dream girl, which is a, a kind of a loaded term. She is quite literally a dream girl because we first see her going through Scott's dreams and um, she uses his head as like a subspace highway, which is kind of one of those nice little casually dropped video gamey type references, which everyone just takes as read. But I think often the reason why Manic Pixie Dream Girls are not liked in at least modern pop culture, is that they only serve a purpose to change the male protagonists himself. They they make they improve them or make them better. But watching this time, and of course we're both speaking as, as two blokes, I kind of got the sense that she doesn't do anything to make Scott a better person. Because Scott is an arsehole. That's the thing which people seem to forget when watching the film. They sort of identify with Scott as he's the hero, he's just like me, and they go totally surface. They don't examine how he's actually really horrible for most of the film and most of the comic books, so that's why what makes it so interesting. But um, I think a, a manic pixie dream girl in the traditional sense is actively trying to change the bloke, and, and the bloke responds. But here, I feel like it becomes... In, it's, it's more internal for Scott. He, he comes to realise that he is an ass and he is just another evil ex waiting to happen. Uh, I know that's something Ramona explicitly says to him during the film. I think that's the sort of key line of the film. And I think it speaks to her and it speaks to him. And I think 
with um, Romana, I agree. I don't think she f- uh, fulfills that mold because, yeah, she wears roller skates and she goes through subspace portals and she changes the color of her hair and all this kind of stuff. But I think usually your Manic Pixie Dream Girl character is like far more like boopity-doop quirk. You reminded me, when, I think is it Natalie Portman in Garden State where she literally just makes a, a weird funny noise. And I've never liked Garden State because it's like, who? This is obviously Zach Braff. Like, oh, I want to write a film where I get a girlfriend. We mentioned this, like, you know, is it all in his head? Are the fights real? And yeah, the protagonist doesn't need to be likable. No. Uh, for a film to be successful. But I sort of think this film really skirts the line. And I think, like, it's always been clear that he is a jerky jerk. Like, uh, start of the film, Scott's dating a high schooler. He is being pretty skeevy. He is uh, behaving awfully to his uh, his high school girlfriend, Knives. Like, when she comes into the place and meets the rest of the band for the first time, uh, he takes her coat and then dumps it immediately on the floor. <laughs> and that's a detail I quite like. He does it to his own coat as well. Yeah, uh, but uh, when they're in the arcade... Like, he's making her pay for the games and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think the film sort of, like, tries to sort of set it from the off that he is being a jerk and all the other characters... Well, I say all the other characters, mainly Kim, the drummer of the band Sets Bomb, who has a past relationship with Scott, is the one calling him out on his bullshit. Mm. Well, in fact, all the women, because his sister as well, and, and Judy, played by Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what I was saying about like the world versus Scott Pilgrim and Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It's like, you know, the world is out to get him. If you paint a bit in that respect, like, oh, it's just Scott Pilgrim, but all these exes want to kill me. But actually, it's literally, you know, everyone thinks you're a complete jerk. She seems nice. Yeah. Yeah, she seems awesome. Yeah. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? I mean, are you really happy or are you really evil? Like, do I have ulterior motives or something? I'm offended, Kim. Wounded, even? Hurt, Kim. You? Hurt? Neil, you were saying about she seems awesome? Yeah, she seems awesome. Yeah. To a certain extent, I think there's a lot of truth in the character because he's, like, 22 years old, he's clearly very emotionally immature, and he's behaving awfully, and, you know, I think a lot of those people exist. Um... And it's just reconciling how much the film wants you to like him. And I think each time I watch this film, I find his actions increasingly troubling. (laughs) And I think it sort of reaches a point now where it's like, I like the film less because of him. (laughs) I can't fully get on board. And I think I always had issues with the film. And not just from the sort of, you know, being a fan of the comets or that kind of thing. Like, I feel like I have issues with the comets too. But I think particularly in this watch, because it's been a little while since I, I saw it, you know, that kind of troubling stuff really stood out. Well, a moment ago you were saying how you don't tend to get arseholes as protagonists in films. And I think the film knows Scott is an arsehole. I don't think film the film is sort of excusing his behavior early on but i think the the problem is as, as what often happens is that people don't get that he's an arsehole it's the same thing with um like 500 days of summer 
where mm. people sort of really identify with Joseph and Gordon Levitt's character and they sort of really see themselves as like a hopeless romantic. And then you see it on Twitter or on Instagram, it's Joseph Gordon Levitt saying, No, stop it. He's horrible. <laughs> He's a horrible asshole. But I think it's Michael Sarah which 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 makes it click for me because if you had he, the problem is as, as the back of the video box says he is actually really charming and he's really sweet and it's this film is also is also about that the sort of the myth of the nice guy and and how quote unquote nice charming sweet innocent boys can be really just just by being lazy i mean all the other exes especially um the final one Gideon Graves played by Jason Schwartzman they are trying to control Ramona's love life and mm-hmm. I wouldn't say Michael Sarah slash Scott's Pilgrim is controlling but he, he's just in a different way he's he's just sort of like he, at one point he's given an ultimatum by his uh, awesome gay roommate Wallace Wells you can't date Knives Chow and Ramona at the same time and he's like oh but it's hard and again, I think one of my favourite bits towards the end of the film is when the, the truth is out and he's in a triangle with Romana on one side and Knives on the other. And he's saying, oh, no, I, I cheated on Knives with Romana. And Romana's like, well, what's the difference? And he goes, uh, you weren't wronged. And it's so freaking weak. It's so such. A, and I feel like so it's, it's about justifying your awful behaviour to yourself. Mm. But I think, as you say, what, what makes this difficult to watch sometimes is that it, it kind of does want to have its cake and eat it too. And it's it's absolutely knowing that Scott Pilgrim is an asshole. It's about Scott Pilgrim learning. But he's also really, he's an amazing martial artist in his head <laughs> and he's got an amazing sword fights. It's like, he's wicked cool and like, oh, wow. So it's, you know, it's that whole thing which, which fandom does, I suppose. Again, I'm thinking of Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty who... He is an unusual protagonist in in modern day pop culture because he is the person with all the answers. He is also a dick, and the show repeatedly tells you he is an asshole, and he's not meant to. He's not meant to be followed as a as an example of good behavior. But people still think like, oh, I can be right and an asshole. Things are great. Yeah, I actually saw a tweet recently where somebody like subtweeted or, or I don't know they tagged Edgar Wright with the bit where Scott Pilgrim goes into a bathroom and doesn't wash his hands for 20 seconds. And he says, oh, Scott's really bad because he didn't do that. And um, Edgar responded saying, yeah, he's not meant to be a great guy. He is like, he washes his hands for like a second. He's not meant to be a role model. Speaks to his character. Mm. I think one of the other adapted from a source material, video game savvy, pop culture reference regurgitating works that we've also covered early on in the podcast was Ready Player One. And Mm. I was trying to work out, like, how is Scott Pilgrim different to Ready Player One? Why is one beloved by critics? And why is, like, the Ready Player One book in particular, like, you know, trashed? And I was just trying to sort of, like, work out, because both of them are, like, totally awesome heroes. And, you know, trying to get the girl and all that kind of stuff. In Ready Player One, he knows everything. And Mm. it's the references, it's his pop culture knowledge which saves the day. Whereas it's interesting, you know, as you're saying, does Scott Pilgrim play video games? Is that, well, actually, I don't think he really knows much at all. I think he's like a complete idiot. And maybe that makes him more likable. I think also 
both I think both the graphic novel and the film Scott Pilgrim know Scott Pilgrim is an arsehole and the whole thing is about him learning to be a better person. All of Scott Pilgrim's faults are viewed as unquestioned uh, positives in the main character Ready Player One. And yeah. if he is a gamer and stuff like that, it's stuff which is sort of embedded into him where um, the main character in... I think Ready Player One. He's basically a walking listicle. He's just he just knows facts and things. He doesn't really live. It has been a while since I've seen it, and I think since we've last done our podcast episode of Ready Player One, a sequel has been announced. So we'll we'll see if we get to do a film <laughs> of that. I just wondered, like you know, we were saying what's happened in the past ten years, and then I was thinking, thinking, like, would Scott Pilgrim have been a gamer gator? I think he's probably mm. not, because I just think he wouldn't have that much interest in video games and i think he's kind of like too much of an idiot but i definitely think that at least a few of those evil letters would have been like incels and mm. <laughs> probably um trashed the feminist frequency blog and written very hateful tweets so i didn't think this film was prescient but maybe in a slight way it has sort of um encapsulated some sort of uh, attitude. <laughs> and what made me giggle watching this film uh, the other day was um, Knives Chow meets Envy Adams, who is Scott's big ex, who is played by Brie Larson. And I was just thinking about how it's been 10 years since Scott came out. And so because it's 10 years ago, Knives says, oh, I read your blog. And just that day, the very day I watched Scott Pilgrim, I watched Brie Larson's latest vlog on Instagram. <laughs> it was like, oh, Brie, I read your vlog. <laughs> I watch your vlog. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah, 10 years later, she's a vlogger. And, of course, the big fun thing about this film is that most of the cast seems to have been in a Marvel or DC movie in some capacity. We have got Brandon Ralph, a.k.a. Superman, as Evil X number three, Todd Ingram. We've got Chris Evans, the Cap himself, Captain America. And Johnny Storm. And Johnny Storm, two for two. For two. We've got Envy Adams, played by Brie Larson, a.k.a. Captain Marvel. There's quite a loaded superhero cast, isn't it? And it's so fun to think, yeah, this is Scott Pilgrim beating the crap out of Captain America right now. <laughs> and Thomas Jane, the Punisher, as... Oh yes, one of the vegan police, and Michael Sarah played Lego Robin. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> the definitive Robin, in my opinion. Sorry, Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> oh, we need a Robin. Why? Why? I really hope the Snyder cut of Justice League finally brings Robin back into the fold, and like you've got this growling, grim, dark Batman. And then this young boy in pixie boots, a bare, a bare-legged shaved boy in the pixie boots. I mean, I think the biggest name was Jason Schwartzman. He was like, I think, the most recognisable person in the cast, and because you know he's always in the Wes Anderson films, and, and like I said, it's just so much fun to see him having a pr really good sword fight. It's so funny that final battle in this chaos theater on like a big pyramid of loads of uh, like dance lights, and it starts in like a scummy Canadian living room. It's uh, 
it's quite it's quite a journey. So what would you say is your favourite fight then in the film? Funnily enough, my favourite fight, mainly because of the music, um, is between Roxy Richter and kind of Ramona Flowers, but also Scott. Because the character Roxy Richter was when uh, Ramona herself puts, she was a little bi-curious. And as the Austin reply, well, I'm a little bi-furious. And the poster for the film kind of reveals one of the evil exes is a girl. So that's kind of a spoiler. When Scott starts to get attacked by a mysterious ninja or half ninja, you know right away, oh, that must be one of the exes. <laughs> Big surprise. But I think in the comic, it was more of a surprise. But I really like the fight because, as I said, the music feels like it's right out of um, one of the latter-day Street Fighters. It's got, a, it's got a great beat and it's very imaginative where I think there's, I think the, the kind of the, the rules of these fights, of these league fights, are, are kind of purposely nebulous and a lot of fun. I, there's a sort of undercurrent of humour about how kind of silly this all is. Yeah. Um, and so when... Ramona starts kicking Roxy's ass and she says this is like a league game he must defeat me and that's that's the thing it's defeat it's not kill it's not fight Scott himself says I have to fight and Ramona corrects him defeat your several evil axes and you know it's, it's it's got all this stuff wrapped up in it and so she Ramona has to take hold of Scott and kind of fight with Scott in front of her and um yeah it's just it's a great mix of music and sound design and interesting choreography and, and all the fights are a little bit different so that's another good thing about all the fights are, are very unique and all the better for it what's your favorite fight what's your favorite x oh well favorite x is a i don't know maybe a little bit different to favorite fight i'm not sure okay so what's your favorite fight and then your favorite x uh, i don't know I think the 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 Gideon fight finale is is pretty cool. It's uh, there's a lot going on, and that's definitely when the like real video gaminess is super foregrounded. There is a lot of pixel distortion going on. I think there's a life bar, literally. You know, weapons with specific properties raising XP and and all sorts. So that's like very visually like arresting that's when the film gets the most kind of visually overloaded i'd say i really love jason schwartzman's performance it's like he's the orchestrator he's the organizer of this whole lead but he's just so like smug and so petty i think my favorite line in the film especially for like when for a villain's final lines is he's dying he's been he's defeated and he says do you know how long it took me to get all the evil x's contact information for the stupid club two hours two hours <laughs> and i mean i think it really speaks to basically all you know a generation of people who just can't be asked to do anything for that long you know it's like really low attention spans it really t- tickles me in terms of like strongest impression out of shortest amount of screen time it's definitely a toss-up between uh, as we said chris evans as lucas lee and brandon ralph as todd ingram yes i think this film has some of the best line deliveries of Mm. of recent years i'm not going to even try to replicate it because i can never quite get it right but just the way 
uh, Lucas Lee says that's actually hilarious is just, <laughs> you know, makes me laugh every single time. And the way, like, Brandon Ralph, like, lists off all the different things that as a vegan he cannot consume. Mm. I think that comes from bringing someone who, to that point, really was a sitcom director. I mean, yes, he'd done Shaun of the Dead and... Was this before or after Hot Fuzz? This was after Hot Fuzz, wasn't it? Yeah. He, you know, he knows what's funny, ultimately. So he was really, he really, I think, tried his hardest to get the cast to give it their all. But yes, I, I would agree with Chris Evans and Brandon Routh. Chris Evans, he has, he's just, he's amazing, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I knew him mostly, you've got to remember back then, I knew him mostly, I think, from either fantastic four and he didn't really he didn't have much of a very interesting character in fantastic four he was also in um sunshine as well i mm-hmm. think but he had you know he had like many people of his um hunkiness he had just been doing like hunky action movie roles and he hadn't really found it yet and mm. you know i think i've said this before but i couldn't believe any anyone would want to go and see a film called captain america it seems so jingoistic and stupid and horrible. And then it's, he's like totally my favourite character. And it's all because Chris Evans is, is an amazing actor and able to portray the Boy Scout mentality of the captain in a believable way. And of course, Captain America is now, we all know, he's not, he doesn't represent America. He's not a White House spokesperson and the film has stuff to say about that sort of thing but now now he's finished with the marvel films for now supposedly he immediately goes and does stuff like knives out and and he's doing all these other things and you can really tell he's just so great and seems to be a really nice guy <laughs> oh my god hey the only thing keeping me and her apart are the two minutes it's gonna take to kick your ass you dated a famous guy in ninth grade we had drama actually it might have been math I just remember there being a lot of drama. Hey! It was a snot-nosed little brat. He just followed me around. It's snot in his nose, but he's famous. Hey, I'm talking to you, Scott Pilgrim. He's famous and he talked to me. The only thing keeping me and her apart is the two minutes it's going to take to kick your ass. Can I have your... Can I have your autograph, please? What's up? How's life? He seems nice. And um, on the flip side, you know, Brandon Ralph, he had been Superman in the, the Superman film that I wouldn't say everyone hated, but not many people liked. Mm. And um, this was a great opportunity for you to realise, boy, why Brandon Ralph's amazing. <laughs> like, he just can't do the Boy Scout routine as well as Chris Evans can. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think he's he's had a lot he's got a lot of fans now he's been in legends of tomorrow and which i've not seen but by all accounts he's he just maybe superman wasn't quite the role for him or maybe brian singer wasn't the man to direct a superman movie but he's so good as the vegan powered todd Hmm. there's like a bit when he's chastising kim pine for not believing in his vegan logic and he goes if you knew the science maybe i'd listen to you and I'm just thinking of all the flipping arguments you're seeing online now about viruses and and pseudoscience and things. And it's like nowadays people will give you links to hack, you know, trashy websites about flat Earth and say, just read this page. If you knew the science, I'd listen to you. Yeah, he's got big flat Earther energy. Mm-hmm. 
and the, and this wonderful hair which sticks up. I mean, we we're talking earlier about how how you replicate the visual style of the comic into the film, and it was a big feature in the comic how uh, Todd's hair would stick up when he was using his vegan powers. And you know what they did? They just did it. And I I remember people. I remember when the first images dropped of Scott Pilgrim and people couldn't believe they were seeing actual, honest-to-God anime hair in the <laughs> live-action movie. It was so good. I will say, though, and I think this is part of the problem with compressing it so much, I feel out of all the villain deaths, all the ex-deaths, his one lands the least for me because within the space of 30 seconds, he introduces the notion that he could read... Uh, Scott's mind and Scott defeats him by thinking really hard about putting non-vegan milk in his uh, coffee mm. and giving it to him and in the graphic novel I think he, he literally says what I need now is some poorly thought out last minute's deus ex machina and then the vegan police arrive and we have actually seen um, because it's a it's a longer format in the graphic novel, we see an earlier scene where he imbibes uh, gelato, and he's like, "I'm a badass, I'm a rock star, I don't need to think about anything." So, I think it works a bit better in the graphic novel. I think here, it, it just seems a little unearned, and I think maybe they needed to lampshade that a little bit more, like the dialogue in the graphic novel said. Yeah, I think that's one of the things where. It's like this unwieldy concept which is already fairly weird and strange and hard to get on board with in the comics and then, you know, translate it onto the film. And it's just like, you know, the audience really has to be on board and even someone who's primed to get it, I still think it's maybe a little too much. It's just about save though, with the performances of the vegan police doing the hand slap as they run back to their <laughs> smart car vegan police mobile. And um, when Scott Pilgrim says, you used to be vegan, but now you will be gone. <laughs> and he goes, vegan? Even though he's meant to be an asshole, I think Todd and Brandon Routh have done more for veganism than perhaps anyone else in the world. <laughs> forget everyone. I think every everyone who goes vegan they secretly think, I'm going to get vegan powers. I'm going to get vegan edge. I think the other thing I like is just the face that Todd makes when he sees like Scott and Ramona in the audience. So like the, <laughs> the, the, the fact is, is that like the whole film is basically this kind of uh, subplot as well as uh, Scott trying to win the affections of Ramona and defeat the evil Etzes. Uh, the band that he is in, Sets Babam, are also trying to get signed to a major record label. And the way to do that is through various different gigs and Battle of the Bands competitions. And one of the bands they want to see is uh, fronted by Envy Adams, Scott's ex, played by Brie Larson. And there's Todd Ingram, who is Ramona's ex, who is on bass. Like, the song they're playing, and I think I think... One of the strengths of the film is the soundtrack, the fact that they did pull all these different musicians and, and talent together to create songs for the different acts. So Sets Babom songs are largely those uh, composed by Beck and The Clash at Demon Head, Envy and Todd's band. Uh, their main song is Black Sheep uh, by Metric. 
and the Tatiyanagi twins, they play a composition uh, by Cornelius, a Japanese musician who I'm a big fan of. That keeps the film very interesting. It keeps the musical numbers really interesting. And also just the songs generally are pretty great. It's actually a rare film about musicians and, and music where the songs are fantastic. Like, you know, How Are the Duck Notwithstanding, band songs <laughs> in films aren't terribly good. I think I even read that during an initial uh, draft of the script, or at least when they were working on it, they were going to have no music at all. It was going to be the fact that the band would start to play and then stop, or it would cut just before you hear the song. And watching the film now, you sort of think like, well, like, you know, we would have missed out on some really great songs Mm. and some really great performances. And of course, in a graphic novel, that's the one thing you don't get you don't get music there are obvious there's, there's um there are sequences in the graphic novel where it tells you how to play a song but that only works if you know how to sort of if you know your chords basically doesn't it so yeah they got to create pretty much out of whole cloth a number of songs and they are all great perhaps none better than um i'm so sad so very very sad which is basically so sad thank you thank you <laughs> My favourite song in the film is, is, is um, I think Black Sheep is really good. And Brie Larson herself sings in the film. Uh, I think on the soundtrack, it is metric. Mm-hmm. For the 10th anniversary, they're going to be releasing, I think, a much expanded soundtrack with Brie Larson's version on there. But uh, my favourite song is Threshold by... Uh, sex bob on and they play that during the uh, fight against the uh, Katayanagi twins and um, that gets repeated in the Chaos Theatre and in the end credits you hear a, a sort of 16-bit digital version so it's quite nice to have a video game video game music in there there's a video game interpretation of the Universal logo Mm-hmm. Um, at the start of the film, which is uh, several orders louder than the menu music on my Blu-ray, <laughs> so it always <laughs> I ramp up the volume of my Blu-ray, and then the Universal music starts. You're like, oh Christ! Um, <laughs> but some there's some actual video game tracks though in this, like a beautiful, beautiful rendition of music from The Legend of Zelda, isn't there? Yeah, there's like a dream sequence with the fairy fountain kind of music mm. which is uh, uh created you sort of hear it playing from uh young neil who's a character uh who spends a lot of time with sets bomb and eventually becomes a member um he's constantly got his ds with him so you kind of hear that starting emanating from his ds and then it transfers into this beautiful version i think it's um a couple of the members from supergrass it's kind mm. of singing the uh, the lullaby style melody, which had to be approved by uh, Nintendo, and apparently Shigeru Miyamoto himself saw the film and and gave the use of the Zelda music his blessing. So that was nice of him. <laughs> yeah, that's very jolly. I, th- I think this is very much like you know embedded in NES era. So even though there is like you know Edgar Wright was saying, you know he's more of a PlayStation person and. I guess it's a little bit strange because the characters are sort of... Well, I don't know. I was like around about the same age as the characters in the film, or at least at the time of the books came out, I was like the same same age. But it's very much embedded in Nez era stuff with just 
not just the references with the names of the bands, but also I think Wallace in his apartment has uh, a Nintendo. And I think it's very much like Nintendo stuff. Like young Neil, he's got an N64 shirt. And like, I think almost the first thing he says is when he meets Nice for the first time and uh, the band has been introduced and she goes, what do you play? And he goes, oh, Zelda, Tetris. That's kind of a big question. I, that's, that's, I love that bit. Young Neil is like the un, unsung hero in this. Is a, a bit later on where he's kind of like, he's kind of like the roadie and he's mouthing the lyrics to Sex Bob-Omb's song and he gets the words wrong and it really it really amuses me. <laughs> but he's, yeah. like, he's meant to be part of the band and he keeps getting it wrong. Like, there's lots of little lines like this. Like I think also Young Neil at one point says, directly after a live gig, he says to Knives, oh, you should see them live, uh, a lot better live. <laughs> he's just sort of parroting <laughs> kind of hipster speak. And it's funny, again, mentioning the word hipster, currently um, the the name being drug, dragged through the mud uh, millennials, but this was made when hipster was the um, lambasted youth group of choice. But I've seen this film both being criticised for being a celebration of hipsters, but also saying how it hates hipsters. And I don't think it really, I don't think it hates, or, or I think it's just, it's, it's, it's about hipster culture. I love how the passwords to get into the chaos theatre, um, Scott Pilgrim gets challenged before he gets to enter the chaos theatre and, and he's asked, what's the password? And he goes, Ugh. and that is the password. He gets let in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's not like Nathan Barley or, or anything like so it eviscerates and I think it's just self-aware hipster culture I think like what 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 I like is very much this this deep bench of characters I think you get a very in the comics as well but I think it translates to the film you get this lived in world you get a real sense of place of time of people how characters bump into characters who half know other characters Mm. and I feel like that feels very real. And I know that I haven't been, but I know that it's like a love letter and a way to Toronto and the feel and the vibe and the places. And there's this whole joke of the concept that Toronto is used as a location for so many films and doubles as New York and multiple movies. And this is, you know, the case in point with Lucas Lee being this stater turned actor, um, star of such films as Action Doctor Action Doctor is my favourite tagline in anything, even real films. I think it is, the good news is that you're going to live. The bad news is going to kill you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is the first time... I've seen this film maybe a dozen times, and this is the first time that they go to this famous castle, which features in the comic book. Um, It features as the... what. Professor X's mansion in the X-Men movies. Mm-hmm. The scene they seem to be filming, though, is in New York Street, and I have no idea why they'd have a castle. Why, why are they shooting at the castle if it's like, you know, it's meant to be a sidewalk with like a burning oil drum and taxis and things? And we talked a bit about young Neil just then, but are there any other side characters which stand out? Because I made a list, there's a, including the evil X's, there's like 15 named characters in this at least so are there any other characters you think we should give a a little nod to before we start wrapping things up i suppose like fan favorite characters like wallace is probably a big one Mm -hmm. the cool gay roommate wallace wells yeah 
played by Kieran Culkin, who still looks uncannily like Macaulay Culkin. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, he's he's yeah, he's great, Wallace. He's a a lot of fun. I like Stephen Stills, the talent, as he's known. Um, everyone gets his little cards saying their name, their age, and their rating sometimes, and he's the talent. But he's got this really funny like nervous energy where he's um he's like super cocky and confident perhaps uh off stage but as soon as it comes to crunch time he's like bricking it it's really funny i mean i think i think my favorite mini tiny itty bitty person i don't know the actress's name sadly but it's knives friend i think it's tamara okay and she i don't know why when like knives is just going completely crazy over how uh, Scott is dating like an old girl. She's probably like twenty five or something, and tomorrow's just like rolling her eyes, and she's like, "I have to deal with this." <laughs> There's just something <laughs> about how like they've spared no expense. I feel on on populating just or even like the barely speaking characters, like at um, the party where Scott is trying to find out more about the girl with hair, just like his doodle. All these kind of little bitty characters are, I think, just look really fun and interesting. And they, it's basically, I'm agreeing with you, Rory, with what you were saying earlier about this sort of lived-in world where, where people know people. It, it feels like a place you'd want to be. Toronto. Yeah, Toronto. A place you'd want to be. <laughs> we've, we've talked about this uh, obliquely a couple of times during the episode, but um, yeah, we get to the end of the film Obviously, Scott Pilgrim has been doing all this to effectively win Romana, or at the very least, win permission to date her. I mean, again, it's comically vague why he has to do this. You know what I mean? It's like... He's trying to avoid it, but then, like, every now and then, someone will come and smash his head in. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, he stumbles onto the set of Chris Evans's film, so what if he hasn't? I don't know. Maybe he would have been smothered uh, in his sleep with a pillow <laughs> or with a skateboard. That's very chilling. He was round of a skateboard inserted into his nose. <laughs> don't worry, I know what I'm doing. Stephen, the new lineup rocks. You guys sound way better without me. Young Neil, you have learned well. From this point forward, you will be known as Neil. And Kim? I'm sorry about everything. I'm sorry about me. Scott Pilgrim! Hey, buddy! Save it! You're pretentious. This club sucks. I've got beef. Let's do it. Wait, 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 wait! You want to fight me? For her? No. I want to fight you for me. Scott earned the power of self-respect. As we've sort of suggested and we've talked about this, it really feels like the film up to a certain point was saying, I feel like it was aiming towards a conclusion where he he ends up with knives. And as we've said, there is a the original ending or the alternate ending, as it's listed on the DVD, was him going with knives because I guess that's what he needed all along. It's funny, I'd, I'd always actually felt this was the best ending when he ends up with Knives. But watching the alternate ending, 
I felt like either the ending wasn't done very well because perhaps there's an afterthought by that point but it it doesn't seem very satisfying to have Scott effectively end up where he started and yeah. also it kind of it kind of means that Ramona walks off and does nothing she just she walks through that door at the end and i think we see this big white door twice we see it at the start when Ramona brings him through the door which again could be the point where this starts to all be in Scott Pilgrim's head and then she she leaves through this door and so does that mean Scott is still stuck in in this fantasy world it's kind of seems like a bit like he's he's still trapped in his own head i think you're right in the sense the film is gearing towards that ending because it has given ramona so little to do but uh, that knives ending is and i think scott going with knives is grim i think the fact that like the little cute joke at the end of that alternate ending is don't worry i've got some quarters i'm gonna pay for your arcade games from now on to me watching it this time especially but for me knives is the hero of the movie she's the only character who has a real proper arc she's the only one who really Mm. goes through a lot of different stages and changes she's the only kind of cool person (laughs) she's the only sort of nice person and i like i find her believable i sort of the way she's wrapped up in this, you know, teenage crush of an older guy and all this kind of stuff, it feels very believable. And I think, like, yeah, the sort of, like, rebound and vengeance and all this kind of stuff, like, there's, like, real passion and energy, and I can kind of see why she's doing this. I can see why she is fighting for Scott. I can't see why anyone else is fighting for Scott or why Scott is fighting for Ramona. I don't think Scott and Ramona have really any chemistry. Mm. I think Knives is like the heart and soul of the movie and I think it the way it completely works in the actual film ending the fact that she says I'm too cool for you anyway I think that just yeah she is completely <laughs> nails it and it's like she 10 out of 10 she wins the film I think it works because I think Scott and Ramona deserve each other because well, not deserve, because I, I don't really think anyone deserves Scott, or Scott deserves anyone. But I think they clearly have damage and baggage, and they've got a lot going on, and it's safer for them to be together than to destroy anyone else. So Knives has got, like, caught in the conflict as collateral damage, but mm. she survives, and... I wish her all the best and a very happy life <laughs> as soon as she gets away from all these toxic people. <laughs> well, I mean, at one point she starts hanging out with uh, young Neil in a, in a sort of way to sort of get vindictively to get back at Scott. Sure. Uh, and I wonder how not young Neil felt in the Chaos Theatre when she suddenly reappears fighting for Scott. <laughs> uh, he'll be okay. I think at that point, though, she's she's saying she's not fighting... Romana because you kind of want Scott back is because Romana hurts Scott and she cares for Scott. I mean, I'd agree. I think Knives is... Well, I think it was a bit unfair when you said she's the only character who who has an arc, because I still think Scott has an arc. I do think Scott becomes a better person. Yeah, but, and but do you think when... he learns anything? 
I think he does. I think because this whole film takes place when he's still in like the morning period of his big breakup. Now, I still think even though he views envy as the source of his pain and, and envy is definitely depicted as someone who's like a little bit catty or bitchy or something i think it's again it's quite cleverly trying to think he's not completely blameless he is a bit of a loser and you know, he's dating a high schooler as the rebound the high schooler is the morning period and he's kind of he's always chasing ramona and i think he really needs to work on himself and i think the ending it, it he has it introduces this character Negger Scott, who's meant to be the final battle between him and himself, and it's a bit of a comedy bit because we actually don't see it, and of course I don't think that anyone would want to see like another fight this time him literally fighting his negative self, but it still kind of undermines the his the ending of his arc so. Yeah, I think he's more adjusted at the end. And so while I wouldn't want, I don't want Scott to go back with knives because I think the scene in the alternate ending when they're back in the arcade machine and it's, they, they, are, they are physically in the same place. And I know mentally he's in a better place, but it still doesn't, it's not that clean enough of a break. It is best for him to be with Ramona. But I think one thing the comic does better is this idea that we can let's start again and and will and they will both be there for each other and i think scott's in the book it's funny romana becomes less a person he wants to chase and have and more a person he wants to to heal and help i think the book does that a bit better in than the film because kind of it all gets wrapped up far too quickly in this little sequence outside the chaos theater just towards the end so yeah i just i just don't think i think this time i watched it it was better it worked better for me than any time before but i feel like i was bringing a lot of of, of outside stuff to the character of romana and i think we just learned a little bit if she had just a little bit more to do and has told a little a little bit more from her perspective it might have unbalanced the film it might have made it seem less about scott's journey but it means that her character, as a result, is a little bit is, is lacking in nutrients and <laughs> things. So, um, yeah, I think, as I say, this 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 is what kind of prevents me from outright adoring it, though I've watched it so many times. I think, yeah, because it did seem there were some more deleted scenes with more Negastrot appearances, and in the comments there is more Negastrot interaction and yeah i wouldn't have necessarily wanted like a big now you face yourself fight like mortal Kombat, even though i always felt that cheap that they didn't do that in mortal Kombat. you know first he pulls out the sword of love and then it's like the sword of self-respect and it's kind of like i get it he has to come to terms with himself maybe self-awareness would have been better because i think he already loves himself i think he already respects himself in a way i just don't know i don't think i really buy that he's really improved apart from the ability to apologize to people <laughs> and like <laughs> say sorry. And uh, I'm sorry. It won't happen again. Yeah. Like, I think part of the reason is also like the sort of casting. I think Michael Sarah is a very good comedy actor. I think this is a good comedy performance. I think he delivers uh, the dialogue 
well, and he has some great sort of moments and lines, but I think his version of Scott is a kind of pathetic dweeb, and I just don't buy the fact that he's got all these women falling at his feet. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk and a moron and all this kind of stuff, and then also he's like a complete dweeb and whiny baby boy, (laughs) and it makes him very hard to like on multiple levels. I I think you only can deal with one or two levels of unlikability and not like four or five. It's funny, I I replayed the um, Scott Pilgrim game, like I said, and I was playing with Scott and uh, I read online that Brian Lee O'Malley himself wrote the endings for all the characters in the game, Mm -hmm. because you can play as Scott, you can play as uh, Ramona, you can play as Stephen, and (laughs) if you complete the game as Scott, you get this... It says, Scott was saddened by Ramona's departure, but only for a little while. Uh, Soon he was dating Knives, Kim and Envy all at once. He was the happiest guy in the world. (laughs) Or was he? And I think Brian said that he kind of purposely wrote that to be a bit annoying. (laughs) Mm. And um, I mean, he, he kind of did it. It sounds like as like, just to make himself giggle, where it was like, so so deliberately, it's kind of like a meta commentary on, on video game endings anyway, you know, how it's like, oh, <laughs> he gets all the girls. But that's the thing, I, I buy Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the game, as the video game version of what's happening in Scott Pilgrim's head. That makes more sense to me, like, the game being the version of the comic that's playing in Scott's head rather than the film. That's a very complicated sentence. I'm not sure I... I went to see see Inception and that made more sense. (laughs) And Scott Pilgrim from the game appears at the end of the movie, smashing up the end, so... I know, and it makes the fact that you can't download the game anymore even more bittersweet and (laughs) anger-inducing. We have unfinished business, I and he. He and me. Don't you talk to me about grammar. I dislike you, Capiche. Tell it to the cleaning lady on Monday. What? Because you'll be dust by Monday. Um. Because you'll be pulverized in two seconds. And the cleaning lady, she cleans up. Dust. She dusts. So, so, so what's on Monday? Because well, it's Friday now. She's the weekend's off, so Monday, right? Basically, you can't win this fight, so you're going to have to give up on this girl because Todd's going to kill you. I think in summation, I think I've mentioned this already, I actually, I really enjoyed watching this again. I still think every time I watch it, I feel differently about it. And I think that's subtly different from a film where you you see different things in it, you know? It's mm. um, I do see different things every time, but I, f- I think it really depends on how I feel about myself. But I think that's still, that's still to be applauded, you know? It's it's asking questions. It's, it's We said this before, it's not doing things unthinkingly. I don't think it's casually throwing stuff out there and, hey, you know, shrugs at shoulders, it's whatever you want it to be. I think it offers a lot to discuss, and I think... The very worst way to watch this film and interpret it is just looking at its surface. And 
as I mentioned before, there's probably loads of people out there who watch this and think Scott Pilgrim's awesome. He fights everyone and he gets the girl. End of story. That's the that's absolutely the wrong way to watch this film. But I sort of feel like that's the best way to enjoy it because the problem is, is that, yes, it is all this awesome stuff being thrown at you. And it's like, I kind of like wish I could not be so bothered by it at the same time so I could enjoy it on that purely visceral level. And I'm sure there are lots of people who can like accept that stuff but just enjoy the visceral experience. But every time, I don't know, I feel like... I would be very hesitant to recommend like, oh, this film speaks to me, <laughs> you know, or like, hey, let's watch Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Like, it's awesome. That's true, actually. It would be an odd film to watch on a date. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just like you have to be like, oh, I love Scott Pilgrim, but not in that way. It's a tricky one. And I, I think between the original books and the film, and to an extent the game, somewhere amongst them is the best version of Scott Pilgrim I don't think any of them quite manage that I think all of them get close but there's something taking it not 100% the way I think the problem with the film when I was watching it this time because I was thinking oh we're going to do a video game movie podcast about it is I was looking at it through a sort of video game framework and then I realized that maybe the issue is that this film is trying to adapt a comic book with comic book sensibilities and video game sensibilities. And I don't think it really marries those things together. It just means there's like another layer to get through because you have panels from the comic. You have, you know, action words like Biff and Boff or Smash or... That's the British version. (laughs) Biff Baff. Biff Baff. Boff. Tickety-boo. So you have all that, but then you also have all the video game points and verses and iconography. And I think it's just like throwing so much at you and maybe it just needs to strip back a layer and it would be a little more manageable. And I think it would help if it was just like a little bit streamlined, you know, not trying to be so you know, not be so slavish to the books to an extent, like allow the filminess to breathe. There's maybe just a bit too much noise. (laughs) Too many notes. Yeah, too many notes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they're talking about, like, could there be an animated version of this? And I know there was like a spin-off released at the time of the film um, for Adult Swim, which is also on the Blu-ray, which like takes a portion of one of the books which isn't in the film and does it a comic book version well it does an animated version of that you know that could work and allow you know the melding of all these fantastical elements and the real world together even though i think the film does a really good job of that i don't know since you've been since you've been talking i've been wondering what a 10 years later scott pilgrim sequel would be like and it's, it's depressed me beyond belief <laughs> like like i think this is a love. This is a love letter for being in your early twenties, and I just, I just don't want to see Scott Pilgrim versus the Mortgage or something. <laughs> I don't know. Him and Ramona have settled down. Yeah, I just, I'm sort of troubled a little bit by this film, and I think in, I don't want to use the word, but here it comes. But this woke era, I think there's a lot this film has value and has to say about 
toxic nice guys and you know as we sort of mentioned all those sort of relationships but then there's just like gay jokes that just don't quite work and there's like sort of mildly racist stuff and some of that's kind of funny the way it's handled and some of that's pretty good but then I don't know a lot of stuff just like clunks in my ears you know there's so much that I do love about the film but I've find it increasingly hard to be like fully on board of it i never thought it was like 10 out of 10 best movie ever but i'm not sure time has been so kind on this film even if a lot of that is intentional because of the main character being a jerk and the you know hero of his own story thereby justifying his jerkiness it's an odd one. <laughs> I'm still trying to reconcile my thoughts. <laughs> Again, I think it's it's better to have a film that you wrestle with. Maybe not, actually. That's bullshit. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice just to really like a film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You, you go, to, I saw Jurassic Park and Inception on the same day. And I was like, oh, I wish I sort of was had mixed feelings about these films a bit more. <laughs> hmm. So that was Games on a Film versus Scott Pilgrim. But what are we battling next? Next time on Games on Film, we are joined by comedian Dan Thomas to discuss a rather obscure early 90s sci-fi video game, slightly horror film? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see and find out. From the director of Captain America, not that one, and the writer of Batman vs Superman, yes, that one, it's Arcade. Yes, this is very. I'm very excited to talk about this because it features, I think, Seth Green and John Delancey from Star Trek The Next Generation. So it's like my perfect film already. <laughs> the two greatest actors of their respective generations. Exactly. In one film. It was so spectacular. It can only be found on video. <laughs> Looking forward to discussing that. In the meantime, though, how can people keep in touch with Games on Film? You can find out more about the podcast on our website, gamesonfilm.witsite.com slash podcast. And we're also on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram at gamesonfilmpod. And you can email us to get in touch, gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Rory Steele. I'm at Only Man Who Can. And the music for this episode was composed by David Lightfoot. Don't forget, you can like, share, subscribe, find us on all your usual podcasting services, be it Spotify, be it SoundCloud, be it Acast, be it Apple Podcasts, I don't know, whatever you're listening to this on right now. Please uh, do uh, give us a review and rate us, because we like the attention. So thank you very much for listening. I've been Harry. I've been Rory. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.